Recovery Elevator, episode 243. I can't promise myself that I can drink one night because it took three and a half years last time. Who knows what would happen this time? Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we have Patty. She's from Corvallis, Oregon, and took her last drink on July 19th, 2017. She knocks the interview out of the park. You all are going to love it. Right now, as this podcast drops on October 14th, I'm on a cruise in the Mediterranean doing a week-long retreat with Dr. Joe Dispenza. He's the author of You Are the Placebo and Becoming Supernatural. I can't wait to relay some of these teachings to you guys in upcoming episodes in the future, so be on the lookout. What's up, Alcohol is Shit book launch team? I want to say nice job to the team of 300 badasses who helped me release the book Alcohol is Shit into the world. We hit bestseller status in a bunch of categories, but most importantly, we hit number two in the alcoholism and recovery category. There's like 1,800 books in that category, and we got to the number two spot. So thank you guys so much who are on the launch team. Currently, it's at number six. It's sitting next to other books that propelled me forward on my journey into an alcohol-free life, so it feels really good. So thank you so much for that. And before we get to our somewhat contentious topic today, let's hear from my favorite resource, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. In this episode, I cover the two main sources of unhappiness and how hope is sending us barreling off a cliff. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time, and you've heard me drop hints pointing towards this concept in previous episodes, such as episode 237 in the interview with Aisha. But to be honest, I was kind of scared to say it because I know someone, or 10 people, will email me and say, Paul, how dare you say that hope is the problem? Well, this is me saying right now on the air, hope is the problem. Here we go. Let's roll. I first heard that hope can be dangerous when I read When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron a couple years ago. It surprised me. So much so, I hit rewind on the audiobook several times and kept listening. I just finished reading Everything is Fucked by Mark Manson, and he brilliantly makes the same point. I recommend both reads. Saying that hope is the problem goes completely against what we've been taught on this side of the Western world. On the surface, guys, hope is great. It sells books, puts butts in seats, 
allows us to sleep comfortably at night. But ask yourself this question, where is hope located? Not physically, like in a temple, church, or Starbucks, but on a timeline. Every time you hope for something, ask yourself when it will happen, and every single time it's a moment in the future that isn't now. Now let's quickly hammer this point through when we say, I'm hoping to quit drinking. Soon. Hopefully. That's not a plan to quit now. We just projected something into the future. So stick with me here, guys. Hope is anti or denying what currently is. Hope is turning our back on the pain and saying, make it go away, make it stop. When we ditch the hope, we lean into the pain. Better yet, we pursue it. We take ownership. On the deeper level, by design, we know that true growth and expansion comes through the hardships we experience in life. We don't need to go looking for them, but I think we can all agree that simply being a human comes with a guarantee of at least a couple hundred thousand metaphorical slaps to the face, another hundred dozen kicks to the groin area, and a handful of straight-up punches to the grill. And every time we are hoping that a ninja slap from the game of life doesn't come, then we are denying the reality we live in, and will approach everything in life from a basis of fear. Most hope comes from fear. Fudge! I can't believe I just said that. A theme the big dogs all agree on, like Plato, Socrates, Confucius, and the Buddha, is that pain is the universal constant. When we find ourselves with a skin knee or a total mental implosion, we have two choices, accept or deny. And to hope is to deny. Drinking alcohol is a big hoping to feel different. When we are physically addicted to alcohol, like I was when I owned the bar in Spain, the body was hoping to reach a point where alcohol brings the body back into homeostasis. Drinking is a big no thank you to the emotions you're currently experiencing. Drinking is a middle finger to the moment you find yourself in, and I know I drank a lot in hopes to stifle the anxiety that I was currently feeling. Here's what author Pima Chodron has to say about hoping for a different state of being. We think that if we just meditated enough, or jogged enough, or ate perfect food, everything would be perfect. But from the point of view of someone who is awake, that's death. Seeking security or perfection, rejoicing and feeling confirmed and whole, self-contained and comfortable, is some kind of death. It doesn't have any fresh air. There's no room for something to come in and interrupt all that. We are killing the moment by controlling our experience with hope. Doing this is setting ourselves up for failure, because sooner or later, we're going to have an experience we can't control. Our house is going to burn down. Someone we love is going to die. We're going to find out that we have cancer. A brick is going to fall out of the sky and hit us on our head. Somebody's going to spill tomato juice all over our white suit. Or we're going to arrive at our favorite restaurant and discover that no one ordered produce and 700 people are coming for lunch. This is what the German philosopher Nietzsche has to say about hope. Hope, in reality, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Jesus, Nietzsche, tell us how you really feel. Although it's great when people or groups hope for clean drinking water for all, or hope to teach everyone on the planet to read. However, some individuals or groups have hoped for some truly awful shit, like Hitler, Mao Zedong, and Genghis Khan, to mention a few. There are two sides to this hope coin, and none of them bear fruit. Hope can be an insidious addiction. Does any of this sound familiar? I know it did for me. I hope to lose a few LBs. I hope to go 30 days without alcohol. 
I hope to meditate five days this week. I hope to cut back on sugar. I hope my spouse will treat me different. I hope to live forever. I hope Sunny in Philadelphia comes back on Netflix. Anyone? Anyone? I know I've personally hoped for that one. I'm hoping I can do all the shit that Paul mentions on this podcast so I can be happy. I'm hoping to stop this addiction to thinking about the future. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, 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 all this hope can get exhausting. I know what many of you are saying. You're saying, well, thank you, Paul Churchill, for this life and soul crushing podcast episode about why hope is the problem and how I should never hope for anything. Paul, you're a total dick. Hey guys, that's fair. (laughs) This could be a two hour long podcast episode and we are just scratching the surface with this. But what I'm simply hoping, damn it, there's that word again, is to plant the seed. So if hope isn't serving us, then what? If I'm no longer hoping for a better tomorrow, then what? Well, step aside, Jon Snow, because there are two main sources of unhappiness in life. Number one, not getting what you want. And number two, getting what you want. So throttle back on the hope, which all lead to both those sources of unhappiness in life. And start leaning, start embracing, and start accepting what is this moment without hoping to depart from it because it is the ultimate teacher of all time. And with hope, we depart from whatever the present moment is trying to teach us. It's like stuffing cotton swabs in our ears while class is in session. And guys, look, I'll be honest. I still hope. Of course I do. I'm human. I still find myself hoping. But when I do, I make sure I'm not hoping for something bad not to happen. That's kind of a mouthful right there. That's a bunch of knots. So let me clarify this. Don't hope for a negative not to happen. For example, I hope my drinking doesn't get worse. Swap it out to this. I hope to love myself more so I don't have to drink. One of them has a low vibrational frequency and the other one doesn't. And the big one that I do and I highly recommend you explore as well is each time you find yourself hoping for something to happen in the future, for something to be different, imagine it's already here or it's already different. For example, I hope to be happy. I'm hoping for more love and connection in life. Imagine that you already have it. This alone will have a profound impact on your life if practiced consistently. Well, guys, I hope you all, damn it, there's that word again, (laughs) listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode because I enjoyed putting it together. Before we hear from Patty, let's hear from today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed a hire director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Patty, how are you? 
I'm good, thanks. Fantastic. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this. When was your last okay. drink? July 19th, 2017. July 19th, 2017. Over two years without a sip of alcohol. Nice job, Patty. How does it feel? It feels fantastic. Great job. And I'm excited to learn and share with listeners how you did it. And, and right there when I said learn, I'm excited to learn. There has not been one interviewee or interview that I've done where I haven't learned something. And so, Patty, I'm excited to learn something from you and share your story with, uh, with the audience. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Patty? Oh, boy, a lot of questions. I'm originally from Fairbanks, Alaska. I live in Oregon now. I have three kids, like, in their 40s, and I have seven grandkids. I was a departmental administrator at Oregon State University for 30 years, and I am now retired. What do I like to do for fun? Wow, I, I don't know. It's changing. Hiking, kayaking, sailing, seeing if I can train this gigantic puppy that I got. What kind of puppy? She is an English lab, and I got her in December. She weighed 12 pounds, and she now weighs 75. Whoa, and what's her name? Yeah, her name is Paula. Paula, beautiful name. Yeah, like with a W, Paula. Uh, oh, okay, a little pun in there. Nice job. Yeah, my grandson came up with that. Yeah, okay. so that's me. Gotcha, and earlier before I hit record, you said you're 65? I am. Fantastic. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, give listeners background with your drinking. Uh, when did you start? <sighs> How much did you drink? Did you ever try to moderate? Did you ever try to quit? Did you have a rock bottom moment? There's a bunch more questions for you, Patty. Get us up to speed and take your time. I think the first time I actually got drunk, I was 14. And the very first time I got drunk, I was blackout drunk. And just kind of didn't see, I wasn't afraid, I had fun, it was not a big deal to me, or it wasn't, it just seemed like, oh, I liked that, you know, I wasn't like, oh, that was bad, I shouldn't do that again. Had a blast, um, definitely a child of the 70s, married a musician when I was very young, and there was a lot of sitting around, you know, smoking pot, writing poetry, I got really tired of that because that's all we ever did, and there was no money to pay rent, and so I think I had a pretty traditional trajectory of drinking like you start out you kind of drink and if you go out you have tequila shots um and then probably in my mid-30s I started drinking like at home alone and I think that's much more of a trigger for me than social situations being home alone and bored I start thinking about wine and, and Patty in your mid-30s you mentioned you started drinking alone there was a, a bit of a progression did anything happen I left Alaska. I was down here working. I had three kids. I was a single mom. So it just kind of helped with, you know, I could have come home from work, have some glasses of wine, get the kids through homework and dinner and baths and all of that stuff. It just took the edge off, you know, and definitely had a lot of fun with alcohol for many years. But it's that old thing of like, it's fun till it's not fun. And then you can't quit. And I probably in my 40s started trying to quit. I would get 40 days or get you know, two days or whatever. I, and I had also had like four months, 11 months, and then this time. Gotcha. So in your in your 40s, you had four months, 11 months, I think you heard. Did I hear that right? Yeah, maybe even 40s and 50s. I think that was kind of a, you know, 15-year period where I'd try to stop and start and, you know, get get a few months and decide, no, no one ever quits in May. I don't want to get, that's a ridiculous month to quit drinking, you know? And just that thing that everybody does. And, and I was exhausted I look back at my 30-year career, and I went to work almost every day with a hangover. 
it just was part of my life, you know? Now, did you notice the the drinking from your 30s to your 40s to 50s? Was there a gradual progression? And did it happen in a way that that you weren't able to see it? I think I was always pretty aware of it. I just wasn't able to control it. But I definitely would drink on Friday nights and Saturday nights and then not drink through the week. And then pretty soon I'd start drinking on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then, you know, pretty soon I just drank every night. I just drank more on the weekends. So and, I think. And what, were, and what were some of the ways you did try to control it? Oh, my God. You know, I would switch from white wine to red wine because I don't like red wine. I would switch from wine to beer, which I hate beer. I would try, okay, I'm only going to have gin and tonics and no more wine. Every moderation that everybody's tried, you know, I'm only going to drink two, which was probably my biggest fail because after two glasses of wine, I don't give a damn about only having two glasses. It just doesn't work for me. And I think this last time getting sober two years ago, before that had been about three and a half years, and I was sober then for almost a year. And it was New Year's Eve, someone handed me a glass of champagne, I was at our cabin, and I thought, you know what, I'll just drink while I'm here, fuck it, it's going to be fine. And it took me three and a half years to get sober again. Wow. That's where I'm at now, I realize that about myself. If I drink now, it's been two years, I feel great. If I drink now, I really believe, it might take me, I think I would get sober again, but it might be five years, it might be ten years, you know. I can't promise myself that I can drink one night, because it took three and a half years last time, who knows what would happen this time. And and Patty, earlier you mentioned you were finding it harder to control or you were aware that you couldn't control it. Now, was there a time where that scared you? And I'm looking back for me at 2014. And like you said, you had you had several months before, almost a year, three and a half years ago, I believe you said. And and, and then you drank on New Year's and it took you three Mm -hmm. and a half years. Maybe it took you three and a half years to get back to where we're at right now. Because there was a time in 2014 for myself when I kept telling myself, look, I've been sober for two and a half years prior. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. And one day it sunk in that, wait a second, I am fully out of controls and I have zero control. And it was, it was a scary moment. It was in May of 2014 when I recognized that I didn't have any control. Was there a moment where it got scary for you? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I didn't quit drinking for another whole year. But I had been stuck in the SeaTac airport for like four hours. There was a delay. So, of course, we all went to the airport bar, and then we flew to Eugene, pretty short flight, had a couple glasses of red wine on the plane. And when I was landing in Eugene, I thought, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to sleep when I get home, so I'll take a couple of Vicodin right now. And the, by the time I got home, it just scared the shit out of me. I, I should not have been driving. Like, I had one window down. I had the music blasting, you know, using one eye. And I was, oh, my God, I've never been so happy to get home safely in my life. But the next morning when I was sober, I realized, wow, I could have killed somebody or me or, you know, I think that was really scary. That was when I realized this is out of control. And was that in 2017? That was in maybe, yeah, maybe earlier that year, like January 2017. Gotcha. And get us up to speed from then till uh, July 19th. So I have a granddaughter that lives with me. She had spent a year in Spain. She and her mom came over and my daughter struggles with alcohol. She's like 42. And my daughter had brought champagne. And so my granddaughter who had been in Spain is like, well, I drank in Spain, whatever. And I kind of, I'm like, this is not good. I should not be drinking with either one of them. My daughter struggles with alcohol. My granddaughter's 16. But we had the champagne and then we had some more. And I just realized the next morning that was not cool. It was not cool to be drinking with either one of them. Nobody got drunk. You know, it wasn't like anything horrible happened. I just realized I got to change this, you know, and... 
I also, with the granddaughter that lives with me, had started getting like in the evenings, I would be so drunk that I was just snarky. And she's a great kid. She's fabulous, you know, and I would just be snarky with her and wake up the next morning thinking, shit, what were we fighting about? That's I got to go apologize. And I was really tired of that feeling, you know, waking up thinking, what the hell? So nothing, nothing dramatic happened other than 40 wasted years of my life, you know. And you mentioned your daughter struggles with alcohol. Have you two had this conversation together? I have taken, I don't do AA myself, but I have taken her to a couple AA meetings because she asked me if I would, and I was sober so I could do that. So that was fabulous, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I see see hope for her. Yeah, and normally she called me one night like at 6.30 and wanted to go to a meeting. Normally I would have been off into my wine. No way I could have taken her to a meeting. So that was important to me. That was pretty cool to be able to do that. Yeah, and, and, and Patty, how did you do it on July 19th or July 20th? How did you do it those first couple of weeks? Well, luckily, I had a really uh, some type of virus, and I wasn't feeling good, so I couldn't drink for like three or four days. And I'd been thinking, I'd been wanting to quit that morning when I had drank the night before with my daughter and granddaughter. And just decided, okay, I'm going to try it. But I had kind of a different mindset because of this naked mind. I had this mindset of like, wow, maybe I don't have to do that anymore. Where always before my mindset had been like, I'm not doing that. I'm just not. And I think that mindset helped me a lot. I remember walking my dog at like day 17 and thinking, oh, my God, maybe this is it. Maybe I can do it. And being happy about it, being excited about it. You know, other than like taking showers, eating ice cream, taking naps, I think the mindset is the biggest thing that helped me do it this time. So can you clarify a little more on the difference in mindsets? Earlier you mentioned that you're like, you can't do it, and then you don't have to do it. Is that the difference? Expand a little bit more I really on that. think so. Yeah, before I was like, damn it, I am not drinking again. I don't care what it takes, I'm not drinking again. But this time my mindset is really, and it still is, is really more like, wow, I don't have to do that anymore. I am so happy, you know? And, and, and listeners, Alan Carr, The Easy Way to Stop Drinking, and then Annie Grace in her book, This Naked Mind, does a fantastic job of taking this concept of it to a new level, which is, that quitting drinking is an opportunity of a lifetime and not a sacrifice. And that's been a huge theme on this podcast as well and has has mirrored my trajectory on this journey. In fact, my first two and a half years from January 1st to uh, August of 2014, I was going on a sacrifice and it was a willpower-based journey. And after that, this time, uh, and I'll, I'll admit, I started on willpower again, but very shortly which is important to do, I slowly tip the scales into an opportunity-based uh, mindset. And like you just said, the first part was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't do something. There's going to be a lack, a mindset of lack, which is unconsciously reinforced. And Annie Grace does a fantastic job of laying that out in her book. My copy of This, this Naked, Naked Mind, when I read it my first year or two, is full of notes, et cetera. It's a, yeah. I mean, it's a <laughs> flagship book. I highly oh, recommend yeah. it. And I would be honored yeah. if my book that's coming out shortly um, would be on a bookshelf, on the same bookshelf, because uh, that was a big book for me. And then yeah, what you just said, changer. the second time around is you realize like, wait a second, I don't have to do this. Um, and what did that feel like when you made that mindset shift? I think it felt like I was taking charge of my life. I've had an amazing, great life and just been blessed in so many ways. And I was always in charge of like my kids and my home and my career. I had that stuff, you know. But I never had my life under control. Things just kind of happen. You know, you're in this relationship or you're not. And I didn't ever feel like I had a, a plan. Nothing ever felt like in any type of control. And certainly drinking contributed to that. So now I feel like I can make things happen. Like I don't just write lists about them. I actually go do it. 
Yeah, I think that's the biggest, that's one of the biggest differences. You know, physically, I feel great. Patty, now in those first couple months, maybe even first month, was there a moment where you thought about drinking again? Um, definitely. And one thing that helped me so much is is just thinking it all the way through. I have never in my life wanted just two drinks. I, if I'm going to drink, we're drinking. So I would just call myself on my bullshit. It's like, you do not want two glasses of wine. You want the escape that two bottles brings, and then you're going to have to face tomorrow. You know, and just kind of play it forward. Like, what what are you really thinking about this one or two glasses of wine? So I think playing it forward like that really helped. I wasn't, I don't think I was too tempted. I had just really had enough. You know, I definitely ate a lot of candy, ate ice cream stuff I usually don't ever eat and let myself order pizza, you know, whatever. And cooking and drinking wine was always my happy place. And I had to give up cooking. I just, I rarely cook anymore. And I used the money I didn't spend on wine to order takeout. I don't know. It worked for me. Patty, I'm a firm believer. We can't think ourselves out of a drinking problem. I, yeah. I firmly believe that. However, there is a great strategy. What you just mentioned, play the tape forward, where we have enough data behind us when the internal dialogue, the inner addiction voice that we personify, mine is named Gary. Um, when <laughs> Gary starts chirping and it says, hey, Paul, look, man, we're at a wedding. We're going to have two beers. That's it. Shut her down. It's going to be great. On surface level, I'm like, wow, Gary, great effing plan. We're doing this. Yeah. Wait. Wait a second, Gary. The last 312 times we tried that, it didn't work out as planned. And so like you mentioned, um, when we, especially in early, early sobriety, when I had those thoughts, I could actually play the tape forward and think um, logically what would happen. Because I had enough data in the background to know that a one, one and done night, near impossible. It just, it just was, was not the norm if ever happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great way that we can actually think ourselves out of one or two um, cravings and relapses, or avoid a couple of relapses. And so what are, what are some things you mentioned physically you feel great? What are some other improvements in your life that you've experienced in a life without alcohol? I think, you know, one of the big things, I used to just make a lot of plans, and I never followed through on them. I, you know, for, things for myself. I took care of the house and the kids and all of that stuff, but things for myself. So I think that's that's kind of a change. Like, I just uh, started, I'm going to get my private pilot's license, something oh, I've talked about all my life. And I'm signed up and ready and, you know, even going to Bozeman, like, that's a big thing. I probably would have made plans for it and then, you know, maybe punked out at the last minute or just never really signed up. So I think that's, you know, that's a big difference. And the thing about playing it all the way through what is really wanting two drinks means. I also, that's so frustrating because I know that I'm smart. I can think through anything. I've got all these resources at my hands and I could not make myself stop drinking with, with my brain. I think, I think you got to have action. So I've been a lot more physical, you know, just not walking the dog. And instead of talking about walking, we just get up and go. Yeah, that's been a big change. Well, on a micro level, which you mentioned that you following through with your plans when I was drinking, and I know you'll resonate with this, Patty, and listeners will as, will as well, we make thousands of plans mostly regarding to quitting drinking that we never <laughs> follow through on. And many of them are internal declarations that are seemingly clear lines in the sand. Often when we wake up, the eyes open and say, okay, I'm done drinking for good. Later that night, next day, sometimes even the middle of the day, um, I didn't go through with that plan. And so, like you said, you're able to go through with that plan to not drink, and then any other plan is fair game. You know in a life without alcohol, it can be accomplished. And listeners, you heard Patty say, Bozeman, we're recording this on August 13th, one day before the Recovery Elevator Retreat takes place in Bozeman, and I'm going to meet Patty in person. I cannot wait. How are you feeling about the retreat? 
I'm really excited. I was looking over the itinerary going, ooh, swimsuit, that's a good sign. Yeah, the weather, it looks like the weather's going to be great while we're there. I'm excited. Yeah, what are you looking forward to most? I think just hanging out with a bunch of like-minded people. You know, I'm excited about being sober, and it's really fun to hang out with people who are also excited about it. Sure, and we were reinforcing what we said earlier, that this is an incredible opportunity to have fun to learn how to have fun with that alcohol. And Patty, this is like my sixth or seventh retreat of, of this format that I've put on. And the first one, first couple, yeah, I mean, it was like, like let's, let's wake up early, retreat, recovery, sobriety, journal, pen, you know, from sunup to sundown. And the further I go with this, Patty, we just want to have fun. I mean, laughter yeah. is the best medicine. So I can't guarantee anything, but I, I, I am predicting a lot of laughter. But I think that's important. I think learning to have just fun when you're not drinking, that was huge for me. I mean, I didn't go anywhere. Either I didn't go if you couldn't drink or I was just waiting to leave so I could get home to drink. So actually, you know, being present, having fun without alcohol, it's like a skill that I'm 40 years late on learning. So I'm excited about more, you know. Yeah, that wasn't just a phrase how I said that. We actually have to learn how to have fun with that alcohol. We need to build yeah. those neural networks. We need to learn how to relax with that alcohol. I mean, that's I mean, that, that's like a fun task, right? Hey, guys, we just need to relax. That's it. Free yeah. time. Go relax. <laughs> that's part of the retreat. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true for a lot of us, for me anyway. I went on vacation uh, maybe the end of the first year of my sobriety with a bunch of people that are just kind of lightweight drinkers. I think there was a half a bottle of rum drank the whole week and there was five of us. And I realized if I had been there, I would have been drunk every night, but I assumed because they're not against drinking and because one of them might have a drink and a half at, at dinner, I would have just thought, oh look, we're all drinking, this is great. And not drinking, I realized, wow, I was putting on this shit show with everybody I ever got together with for 40 years. Like it was, it was a real eye opener for me. I think a lot of us don't realize how much more we drink towards the end of our drinking than other people are. Absolutely, Patty. I agree 100% with that. It's who we hang out with, what we tell ourselves. It's all just a cover up. And when that mask goes up, like you said, it's like, whoa, the amount that I consumed was so, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I know. And and Patty, what is something that you've encountered or had to go through these last two years without alcohol that you didn't expect? Well, you know, my mom died three months ago. Sorry to hear that. I, yeah, I didn't, it didn't, drinking didn't even seem like an option. And it was, it was just a real tough time. I'm the executor and there was just so much family drama. My kids were fabulous, but I had some other relatives that weren't and, you know, legal stuff involved and, and, you know, my mom died and, and cleaning out her house, you know, taking her furniture and, but it was really cool to be present. I didn't make decisions I doubted. I didn't have conversations. And there was a lot of tense conversations, but I didn't have conversations I regretted later. I didn't make any bad, I didn't make any decisions based on alcohol. And I dealt with losing my mom, like in a real honest way. You know, I, I didn't just cover it up and kind of hope it subsided. So it certainly was unexpe- wasn't unexpected. She was 90, but she wasn't like at all sick, you know, so unexpected in that sense. Yeah, that was, it was cool to go through that. And also kind of a part of me was watching myself go through that thinking, you know, good job. So I felt good about it. You mentioned earlier drinking wasn't an option as your mom passed away. That's got to feel good because I had a coping mechanism called alcohol. I self-medicated that for a long time and it wasn't day one 
of sobriety this time around where drinking wasn't an option. It was an option that I, that I didn't go down that route for a while. And then eventually, in fact, my uncle died a year in and you're right. I got to a point where it just wasn't an option and it felt good to go through these things and you don't think about it, but sometimes you go, Whoa, I didn't even think about taking a drink. So how did that feel when it wasn't an option? Because there was so much family tension going on and, you know, I've never been through like a a will and being the executor and that stuff. So I was kind of blindsided by, wow, there's some people. And it was very tense. But I felt confident and proud of myself. I didn't feel like, oh, God, maybe it's all because I'm just drinking. I caused this. I should smooth it over. I felt very confident in making decisions and presenting things to people, meeting with lawyers. Just felt like a different. Before, I think I felt like a fraud for a long time because I had a public persona. And then I knew me at home on the couch, you know, watching TV and reading with two bottles of wine down already. So I I think it was in that sense, I guess, was kind of a confidence builder. Like I felt good. Like, ah, I could take that on. That's amazing. That's great. You know, Patty, that's a major confidence builder. That's, that's, yeah. that's huge. And earlier I mentioned, uh, yeah, I was there when my uncle passed away with cancer. Actually, by his bed, my hand was um, on his shoulder, and oh. it wasn't an option. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Was, my uncle and I were, were close. I podcasted uh-huh. about it when it happened. But I remember the next day or two, I was like, whoa, I didn't even think about drinking. It was, it was incredible to be there. Um, in fact, to be there in person with another human being passing sounds weird to say, but it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's crazy. Um, But I was able to be there present. Yeah. Patty, I don't know if you've heard drinking is but a symptom. At first when I quit drinking, I thought it was because I just was addicted to alcohol, loved it. But it turns out I was coping with it. It was a coping mechanism and I was using it to suppress loneliness and feelings of guilt and shame, etc. Do you know if drinking was used to cover up any inner turmoil? You know, I have two schools of thought on that. I can totally see that alcohol is a symptom. I think, you know, happy, well-adjusted, you know, employed people or whatever don't necessarily get shit-faced every night. But I also think it doesn't really matter. It's like, just stop. I spent probably 15 years spending big money on therapists trying to figure out why I drink. And then when I really just quit, then it doesn't matter. You just quit drinking and then you can kind of go backwards and figure out the reasons. So I do believe it's a symptom. I also think I use that as an excuse for a long time to not quit. It's like, well, I got to figure out why I'm drinking and then I'll be able to quit. But I kind of had a part of me that knew that was I just wanted to keep drinking. And that sounded pretty good to that. I call my my drinking brain is Lizzie, short for lizard brain. But my Lizzie, my lizard brain was telling me, well, you don't know why you're drinking. So you got to figure that out. I didn't quit. And that was just part of that committee. Am I drinking? I'm not going to drink. I'm drinking. I'm not going to drink. So I had to just stop. And now I am kind of figuring out. I had an amazing childhood. You know, I was like the only kid in Fairbanks that had a pony. (laughs) And then made horrible choices of men and then spent 30 years being single and raising my kids and working. So I think you can get stuck there trying to figure out why you drink. And I hope people don't do that. Just stop and then you'll figure it out because it doesn't matter why you drink. Just stop, you know. Patty, I love how you said that. Now, I personally have been on both camps. Number one, I was I was in a camp that it's genetic and that I had genetic predisposition, which I still believe is, is, is a fraction of it. But before I was mm-hmm. like 80, 20. Now I'm like 20% genetic, 80% environmental. Now I do love what you said. It's not a good idea to get caught up in the why and go looking for it is in meet with a therapist, a psychologist and talk about everything that's happened in the past because that part's gone. If you, if you get stuck in the past, that's just that you're not in the present moment. 
And what I found about you right around year three, the why started to emerge. It found me. And I yeah. didn't need to go looking for it. And like you said, it's, I don't recommend going out and looking for the why because it will show up when you're ready to cognitively and emotionally face it. I love how you said that. Yeah, your past is not going anywhere. There's time to figure it out, you know? Yeah, and we need to let the past die hard. Of course, reference it periodically to make better informed decisions for the future. But that's it. The past, it's gone. You need to let it die. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, you just need it for reference. You don't have to live it again. Yeah. Yeah. Patty, if you encountered any pushback from friends, from family, from neighbors, there's this thing called the stigma surrounding alcohol addiction um, that when we quit drinking, many of us fear that people will run for the hills. It was not the case when I quit drinking. I had overwhelming support from all areas of my life. What was that like for you? And was that part of the reason why you, you, you put off quitting drinking for a while? I had pretty much overwhelming support. My mother, oddly enough, who was not a drinker, was not supportive. <laughs> I had been sober about six months and she bought me wine glasses for Christmas. <laughs> I don't know. I think because I would go to her house and kind of zone out with the wine and stay longer, she didn't like it that I quit drinking. I don't know. But other than my mom, I had just amazing support. And people that I didn't even really know knew I was drinking <laughs> told me they were pretty happy about it. So I've had, I've had a lot of great friends and, and people always offer, oh, if you're not drinking, do you mind if I drink? I won't drink. I'm like, you can drink all you want. Like, people are very kind, I think. And, and the ones that aren't, I, you know, dump them. I don't know, whatever. But everybody's on their own path. Patty, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself in these last two years? That I am genuinely a happy person. And I can just be really annoying with my happiness, I'm sure. But I think I kept that tamped down with alcohol. Like, you don't want to look like this goofy, happy lab puppy, you know? So I think I'm letting that out more and more. I'm joyful. And, and I really like that. And, it, and it's joy at little things. It doesn't have to be big. It's like, oh, my God, look at that cute dog or that flower, you know, something goofy. But I think I'm just discovering how happy I am. And Patty, from hearing your story, it sounded like there was a progression that you became aware of and you understood of where this was going. However, was there a rock bottom moment that you could expand on? You know, I think that drive home from the Eugene airport was probably my rock bottom. So I don't know that I had any big rock bottom moment, Paul. I definitely years ago gave my daughter a wedding shower and we had a videotaper person and, and God, watch, I was drunk and I was dancing with like an idiot and, you know, not nearly as funny as I thought. That was a rock bottom. I just had a lot of rock bottoms, I think, and it got a hard head, maybe. Definitely the drive home to the Eugene airport when I could easily have killed somebody or myself or gone to jail uh, was a rock bottom. But I think kind of a smaller, quieter rock bottom was when I realized on July 20th that I had spent July 19th drinking with my 16-year-old granddaughter and my daughter who struggles with alcohol. And granted, we didn't let the 16-year-old who had just spent a year in Spain, and her argument was like, I drank in Spain, we didn't let her have, she had a glass, I think, and a half of champagne. But it's not something a normal drinking person would do. Drink with someone you know is struggling with alcohol, and a 16-year-old, does that sound good? That doesn't sound good, you know? So that might have been kind of the, the last rock bottom for me. Well, you were able to see it as well. The next day you realized, you say, look, this, oh, is, yeah. this is not where <laughs> I want to go. And, and you made a change. A nice job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that next morning felt really bad. And I felt, you know, I felt guilty and I felt stupid. And I felt like um, this really is just 
getting lower and lower, like I'm going to have a bad rock bottom. I don't know. That was a that was a big thing for me that I drank with the two of them when you know that was just that was just Lizzie talking because I would not have done that. Now I heard you took your daughter to an AA meeting. Are twelve step programs a part of your journey? You know, I don't do AA. I have in the past. I think I stayed sober for four months. To me, I, you know, I've helped millions of people. I'm a total supporter of it. For myself, it seems so fear-based that it doesn't work for me as much as just joyfully being in the world and accepting that I can't ever drink again and finding, you know, that turning that into I don't want to ever drink again. I don't do AA. I think some of the concepts are great. I've tried reading the big book, and all I can think of is, damn, he needs a better editor. And yeah, I think it's a great program. It certainly has helped millions, uh, maybe not for me. So all meetings have different vibrational frequencies. And Patty, I agree with you. Some of them are fear-based. In some meetings, um, you, I, you hear things like, if I, if, I, if I show up every day, then I got a shot. If I, I, just, I just won't drink tomorrow, right? Some of them, yeah, I don't like the way they feel. And other meetings are um, much, much, much more optimistic. Um, there's laughter. And, and, but everybody, I recommend to figure out a meeting that works for them or just there's so many other ways to do it. And Patty, one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. What are your thoughts on relapse? Oh, man, I think everybody has an amount of relapses that it takes you until you're done. I can see myself other times in my life getting in a danger zone of like, well, everybody says relapse is part of the deal. Maybe I should drink tonight. So I try not to go there, you know. Um, I think the people at relapse, man, I feel for them. I know how bad I'd feel about myself the next day if I relapsed right now. I, I you know, anyway, it says day one, I'm like, oh, man, here's a hug. I, I think it's part of everybody's journey, but it's sure tough. We don't want anyone to go there. Yeah, I don't think it has to be part of your journey. I don't think it yeah. has to be part of this deal. But I do feel if the field research happens, there are important lessons need to learn. It was a big part of my my journey. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I have, I have not a firm believer. I have interviewed people on this podcast that have never relapsed up wow. to this moment. And so it, it is possible for me. For me, relapse was a huge part of my story. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I don't know. Not this time. Yep. Your counter helped me, the recovery elevator counter. It, I used to check that thing every hour. I would just be like, you know, two years ago, man, I would maybe for the first month. I know I checked it every day, and there was times, and I would look at it numerous times through the day and be like, wow, 17 hours. This is so cool, you know? Cool. <laughs> and, Patty, I'm glad you mentioned the recovery elevator sobriety tracker. The motivation behind that was the fact that I relapsed so many times that I wanted my own counter. Because the the, the the tracker that I had before started at .001. For example, like when you wake up, you didn't log 24 hours. You didn't log a day until the day had actually been logged. Um, so I was always on like .00. I could never log one day. So I actually made mm -hmm. an app on iTunes that started with just one. Does that make sense? You might be an alcoholic if. <laughs> no kidding. I was so demoralized that I didn't have one. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make an app that starts with one. So your day yeah, was 1.00. One <laughs> yeah, this was like point zero zero one. Oh man, too yeah. demoralizing. Yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> and Patty, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I love it. <laughs> You're doing great. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Uh, just that I don't have to drink. Like that voice in my head is not the one in charge. Yeah, and this it's, it's not a no to alcohol. It's a yes to a better life. Yeah. And it's getting to a point where you're not saying no to a drink, but you're realizing that you don't have to drink, and it's a beautiful milestone to reach. Nice job. Yeah. What is a memorable moment that a life without alcohol has provided you? 
waking up early. You know, I just started taking a morning Pilates class, which I have talked about doing for 25 years. And I'm actually doing it. And wow, I love it. Get up early, get out the door, you know, meet up with some people and exercise. What the heck? That's that's great. <laughs> I love it. And what's your favorite non-alcoholic drink? Oh, LaCroix, hands down. All the way. Have you tried a bubbly? Yeah, I have. LaCroix. Yeah, I'm kind of on the bubbly way. train as of late, but LaCroix? <laughs> Are you? Good, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I didn't like any of the, like, there's so many calories and other stuff. At first I was drinking Pepsi nonstop. You know, like, you can only do so many weeks of Pepsi. But I also, like, in, in airport bars now, I just order tonic and lime. Love it. Hmm. Yeah. Tastes like it, you know, it just tastes great. Like, it's refreshing. And, and recently I was in maybe Portland Airport Bar and I had three tonic and limes and my bar bill was $4.50. I was like, <laughs> wow. Huge pro. That never happened before. <laughs> and Patty, what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? You know, I hope to live in Panama half of the year, and I'm working on that. I've, I've got a lot of this stuff going on with mom's house and everything. I've kind of slowed down that progress, but that's my goal. I'd like to live uh, in Central America half of the year and spend the other half of the year bumming off friends in Alaska and Oregon and, you know, kids and uh, just try something new. I have been working on raising kids and cleaning the gutters and walking the dog for a long, long time. I'm ready to just do some fun stuff like well, that. Anything is possible in an alcohol yeah. free life. And Patty, you deserve it. Thank you. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite resources? Oh, definitely Cafe RE, you know. And I'm a reader, so I've got every self-help book ever written since probably 1972. And... You know, I've watched a lot of movies lately, too, like Smashed and some of those. That helps me. I went through a kind of saturation point with the recovery books and movies that I had to stop for a while. But now I'm kind of getting back into it and looking at it from, you know, a couple years out going, wow, that was so me. So, you know, reading movies, uh, Cafe RE. I don't do meetings, but I have I have friends that don't drink or, you know, normal drinkers. And it's good to talk to them. They all know that I'm not drinking. They're all supportive. And that's a good resource, just, you know, hanging out with people that don't drink and have fun. and weird they just don't drink they don't care i love it and what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners well think it all the way through you know if you're thinking about having a drink just remember number one i guess you don't have to and and really think it all the way through to the end of that picture and before we depart patty give listeners your own customize that you might have a drinking problem if line if you consider dropping 100 bucks or so in the airport bar on every leg of your journey just part of your traveling expense you might be an alcoholic. For a difference of $96, you went from $100 to $4 <laughs> on three tonic waters yeah. and limes. Yeah. Nice job. <laughs> exactly. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to meet you in person tomorrow. We and 68 other people are going to have a blast. 68 other people. That's so cool. I'm excited too, Paul. Thank you so much for Cafe Ari. It's the best resource out there. I tell everybody about you. Yep, I use it too. I love it. Thanks, Patty. Yeah, thank you. One more thing before we close out. Being hopeful in this moment or being an optimist, of course, is great. Here's a great line I read. An optimist is someone who figures that taking a step backward after taking a step forward is not a disaster. It's more like a cha-cha. Hoping to only take forward steps in life isn't realistic, but being hopeful that all steps taken in life, forward, backward, side to side, all of them are for your benefit is the way to do this. Optimism, just fine. Let's roll with it. In Recovery Elevator, this closing goes out to Anita. We can do this.